And welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Aladdin, a side-scrolling two-dimensional platform title developed by Virgin Games and published by Sega for the Sega Genesis 16-bit console back in 1993. We're going to talk about that game in just a minute, but as is customary first, we have a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 32. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, give comments, feedback, suggestions, or just talk about classic technology and games in general, I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if anybody would like to reach out, have a discussion, I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment and go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, why was the game made, how was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a quantitative value or numerical rating or star counts or anything like that to the games that we talk about, but we do discuss every single game from several different perspectives. We will look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and the overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it might have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. It is a true classic. It deserves your attention. It doesn't matter how old it is. It hasn't aged at all. It is still a remarkable experience, and you owe it to yourself to play it. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are games that are still really good games. I still highly recommend that you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the title or you enjoy the genre. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. They don't quite hit that Pantheon level, but they are still awesome experiences, and I still highly recommend that you play them. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we get to our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the games where I can't really recommend them to the general population. If you enjoy the genre in which the game lives or you've played the game in the past and you want to revisit it, absolutely go ahead. But for the general population, there's usually some sort of issue with the game or they might have aged a little bit more poorly. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reached the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody to play these titles. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Aladdin. Aladdin. <laughs> 
Aladdin is a two-dimensional side-scrolling platform game developed by Virgin Games and published by Sega for the Sega Genesis 16-bit console back in 1993. Now, before I begin, I do want to mention that there is an awesome article on the Sega 16 website by Ken Horowitz that goes into extreme detail about the creation of Aladdin for the Sega Genesis. I encourage anyone who wants a super deep dive into the game's creation to check that article out. A lot of what we're going to be discussing here are excerpts from that article, so I do highly recommend you read that if you want to dive even deeper than what we do here today. That being said, before we can talk about Aladdin, we have to once again dive into the murky world of licensed video game titles, and we have talked about this before, but it's always good to provide a bit of a refresher to make sure that we're all starting on the same page. So let's talk about licensing as it relates to video game titles. Generally speaking, and this is a generalization, most of the time when we talk about licensed titles for video games, and we're talking about things like movies that might have game representations or television shows that might have games that are created with that particular intellectual property, most of the time the games are not all that great. A lot of times, licensed properties are simply cash grabs. You have a very popular movie franchise or something like that, and then game companies license that property, they release games, and the unsuspecting population picks up those games, purchases them because they think, well, the movie was awesome, the game must be as well, and oftentimes that is not the case. A lot of times the license holder or the licensor doesn't really care how the game plays or what's done in the game as long as money is made. And most of the time when people are licensing a property, there's money exchanged up front independent of any sort of sales. So that kind of insulates the licensor from any sort of negative backlash for the most part. And the licensee, the person who actually purchased the rights to the license, they kind of assume most of the risk. But because usually they're working with some fairly well-established properties, most of the time those games are going to sell pretty well, independent of how they actually play. I will say that this is something that was much more prevalent in the 80s and 90s. There are still licensed games today, but I don't know that they are something that a lot of people go out, seek out to actually play all that much unless they hear from somebody or from a website that it's actually a good game. Back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't really have all that. So most of the time when a game came out, and plus there weren't all that many games, especially in comparison to today, so you didn't have quite as many options. People would pick up whatever they could get and sometimes that was licensed titles. Well, those were licensed titles. Uh, there are some examples that we can talk about as far as really poor licensed titles. The big one that everybody has pretty much heard of is E.T. for the Atari 2600, where that game was basically created over a period of around six weeks. It did not represent the movie at all. It was critically panned. No, gamers pretty much disliked it across the board. And it was one of the reasons why the video game crash of the early 80s actually happened. But at the same time, being one of the early licensed titles, it kind of set the stage for what licensed titles would be beyond that, which once again, are typically games that are not really necessarily designed all that well. They may take some very loose creative license with any of the properties that they are trying to create games within that universe or using the characters within that property. 
That's not to say that there weren't quality licensed games. There absolutely have been quality licensed games. There are a number of examples of well-received, competent licensed releases that gamers around the world have legitimately enjoyed. But the sheer magnitude of poorly licensed titles far outweigh those relatively fewer quality experiences. Now, around this time, there were a few companies that dedicated a fair portion of their portfolio to licensed games. And for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to focus on two of those companies, Capcom and Virgin Games. Longtime listeners might recall that Capcom was the company behind the much-beloved DuckTales for the NES, which we talked about all the way back in episode 11 of this podcast. Capcom had a long-standing relationship with Disney as one of its core licensees, with the company having worked on games based on DuckTales, Chippendale, Rescue Rangers, and Mickey Mouse, just to name a few. In 1992, with Disney preparing to release their newest animated film, Aladdin, the company once again looked at Capcom to handle the creation of a licensed game based on that property, which would lead to the development beginning for Aladdin on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System right around that time. Now, beyond Capcom and Nintendo, Disney also had a long-standing relationship with console rival Sega, who had published several hit-licensed properties on the Genesis, with perhaps the best-known release being Castle of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse. Sega, similar to Nintendo, wanted to make a game based on the Aladdin property, and given their prior experience and success in creating Disney-licensed titles, they easily acquired a license from Disney to create a game based on Aladdin. With that license in hand, Sega decided to contract the work out to a company called Blue Sky Software, which was a Sega development partner who had previously worked on The Little Mermaid for the Sega Genesis. So Blue Sky Software was no stranger to working on licensed games, and in their relatively short existence up to that point, they had worked on such licensed properties as Arachnophobia, which was a fairly popular spider movie back in, I guess it was maybe the late 80s, early 90s, time frame. They also worked on a game called Avoid the Noid, which was based on the Domino's Pizza Noid character and Dick Tracy, in addition to their work on The Little Mermaid. Now, I do want to spend just a minute talking about The Little Mermaid on the Sega Genesis. To put it lightly, it was not well-received, with many people complaining the game was too easy, had half-baked artificial intelligence, and was just simply a poorly designed experience intended to cater only to young audiences, and even then, probably not interesting enough to hold a youngster's attention for any period of time. One critic even claimed that The Little Mermaid was the worst licensed Disney game ever created. I will say that I have not played the game personally, so I can't provide my own personal opinion. But considering the generally unfavorable response and the degree to which Aladdin was expected to be a box office hit, it is a little surprising to me that Sega decided to use Blue Sky software to create the Aladdin Genesis title. Even more surprising than that, is the fact that Blue Sky at the time not only had the license for Aladdin, which was expected to be a big hit, but it was also working on Jurassic Park for the Sega Genesis, which was another major upcoming blockbuster that was expected to be the movie of 1993. With both of those major licenses under one relatively small studio's roof, you might imagine that there would be conflicting priorities. And if you did imagine that, you would absolutely be right. 
Blue Sky was given general direction that Jurassic Park was the priority, so the majority of their effort would be spent developing that title with less attention being paid to Aladdin. This kind of makes sense, given the fact that the Jurassic Park title was scheduled to release in the summer of 1993, with the Aladdin Genesis title slated for fall of 1993 to coincide with Aladdin's release on videocassette. But even with an understanding of that release timing, Disney was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the progress that Blue Sky was making, especially in comparison to Capcom's work on the Super Nintendo version of the title. I do want to note, though, Everything I read indicated that Blue Sky's work on Aladdin wasn't necessarily bad, per se. In fact, even Disney recognized that the game was coming along as a pretty standard platforming kind of experience. There was nothing egregiously wrong with what Blue Sky was doing. The only issue was that Disney wanted something more. They had worked with licensees before, and they knew what level of quality they wanted to achieve with this latest release, especially considering the hype surrounding Aladdin. They wanted an experience that would stand toe-to-toe with the film and provide an expanded, true cinematic action adventure, not simply a competent licensed platformer. Blue Sky's work was just not hitting the mark, and Disney didn't appreciate the fact that the company's priority was Jurassic Park, not Aladdin. As a result, Disney eventually canceled the game entirely, leaving Blue Sky to work exclusively on Jurassic Park, which ultimately actually worked out just fine for them since Jurassic Park on the Genesis ended up being a pretty big hit. With the cancellation of the title, Disney was left without an Aladdin game scheduled to release on the Sega Genesis. But it did have other options beyond Blue Sky available to them, with one of the companies on the short list of potential licensees being Virgin Games. We have talked a bit about Virgin before, specifically during our Terminator episode a couple weeks ago. In terms of companies working on licensed titles, Virgin was one of those labels that devoted a fair portion of their portfolio to licenses, with numerous games released over the years, including titles based on Alien 3, Superman, Terminator, 7-Up, and McDonald's. Hearing some of those names, you might be asking... Why the heck did fast food chains and sodas have licensed video games created based on them? I honestly don't know the answer to that question, but interestingly, it was a McDonald's licensed title that drove Virgin and Disney to want to work together. And that McDonald's game was called Global Gladiators, which was itself a successor to another McDonald's game called MC Kids. Global Gladiators was a platforming title developed by a man named David Perry, who had recently joined Virgin Games in 1991 following a brief stint with Probe Software, during which time he developed the Terminator for the Sega Genesis. Global Gladiators was an impressive title. It contained high-quality, almost Disney-like animations with bright, vibrant colors, fast-paced action, and an overall level of polish that you wouldn't normally associate with a licensed game. When Disney producer Patrick Gilmore saw Global Gladiators at the 1992 Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, he knew that he wanted to work with the talented team behind the game. An initial partnership deal was struck that would have Virgin Games begin work on a video game adaptation of Disney's classic film, The Jungle Book. While work was getting started on that new title, Gilmore and Virgin continued to have various discussions with a focus on determining how they could continue to work together, as Disney had been impressed with the progress being made on The Jungle Book so far. One day, 
Virgin brought Gilmore a proof-of-concept demo for a game called Dino Blaze, designed to be a direct competitor to the extremely popular Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles pop culture phenomenon. While the demo itself would never materialize into a full-fledged game, the quality was so high that Gilmore saw an opportunity. Recall that Disney's Aladdin title for the Sega Genesis had recently been canceled, leaving the company without a Genesis-based version of the game. Given the work that Gilmore had seen coming from Virgin, he believed that he might have found the right company to begin working on Disney's Aladdin title, so he began discussions with both the Virgin team and the Disney leadership team to see if a deal could be made. Gilmore arranged for an early cut of the movie to be shown to David Bishop, a design director within Virgin, after which he had a proposal. He asked Bishop if Virgin would be interested in creating a game based on Aladdin with one catch— the game had to use Disney's own hand-drawn animations in the title. This is something that had never been done before. Virgin had a ton of experience creating high-quality animations for their games, but they had never worked on integrating film-quality hand-drawn animations created by a different group into a game before, with the goal being a game that looked like a cartoon rather than a sprite-based video game. At the same time, Disney had never worked within the constraints of a typical cartridge-based game console before. When Disney animated something, they did so with the freedom that film provides, which basically means that they could add whatever level of detail or quality of animations that they wanted. The act of creating animations for a video game is a dramatically different kind of experience. Obviously, there were some concerns and doubts as to whether something like this could even be achievable. So, before the deal would be finalized, Disney leadership required the Virgin team to develop an overarching game design and proof of concept for what the game would be and how it would look. Virgin realized that this was a huge opportunity, so a team of individuals effectively locked themselves in an apartment for days straight to work exclusively on the design for the title, including the creation of a draft version of the game's first level, intended to demonstrate that Virgin had the expertise needed to create a truly groundbreaking cinematic game. The meeting between Disney and Virgin took place shortly after the design was completed, and Disney ended up liking what they saw, so much so that they decided that Virgin would be the company to create their new Aladdin game for the Sega Genesis. There was only one problem. Sega currently had the Aladdin license, and despite the fact that their version of the game had been cancelled, there was still no way for Virgin to work on the game unless a deal could be brokered with Sega. And that led to a series of meetings between senior leaders at Disney, Virgin, and Sega, with multiple negotiations to figure out how a potential deal could be reached. Eventually, an agreement was made whereby Virgin and Disney would handle the development of the game, while Sega would handle distribution and marketing, with Virgin, Sega, and Disney all owning an equal share in whatever profits the title would achieve. That deal, however, came with a number of provisions, most of which were driven by Disney itself. As part of the deal, Disney made Sega agree to ensure Aladdin had a release date that didn't conflict with any Sonic game release, while also requiring Sega to spend as much effort and money marketing Aladdin as they would normally spend on one of their own flagship products, namely Sonic. Further, Disney executive Jeffrey Katzenberg required final approval authority over any and all marketing materials, as both he and Disney in general were becoming more protective of their intellectual property and licenses. 
Walt Disney had always strived to maintain a certain degree of quality and consistency for their licensed properties, they were looking to become even more involved in the future. This deal was expected to be the first step in that general cultural shift. With all parties in agreement, development on Virgin's version of the title began in January of 1993, with a targeted release date of October of that year to coincide with the home video release of the Aladdin film. So the team quickly got to work on creating the game, utilizing David Perry's game engine that he had previously developed and evolved over several different titles, including the aforementioned Global Gladiators and his initial work on The Jungle Book. That engine would serve as the basis for the platforming action and the vehicle within which true Disney animations would play on a home console for the very first time. Now, the process of taking actual hand-drawn Disney animations and turning them into a console experience is pretty interesting itself. As mentioned previously, Disney animators are great at creating animations for feature films, but back in the early 90s, they had no clue how to work within the limitations of a hardware-specific game console. So the Virgin team worked very closely with Disney animators to describe the constraints, requirements, and overall process of creating animations for a video game. Things like creating animations that could loop and compress effectively, as opposed to the relative freedom that movie animation typically entails. Despite Disney's rock star status in the animation field, they actually took direction from the Virgin team with an entirely open mind, and a team of 10 animators churned out all of the required artwork and characters, sending those artifacts to Virgin for inclusion in the game. Now, because the Sega Genesis was both cartridge-based and had color and graphical limitations far in excess of what was possible with film, a significant amount of effort was required to take the hand-drawn Disney animations and convert them into a usable format for a game. Virgin utilized a process they called Digicel, which was effectively a combination of tools, techniques, and workflows that they had designed to take high-quality animations and compress those materials into a cartridge-sized format all with little to no reduction in overall graphical quality. It was, effectively, graphics wizardry. Turning our attention to the creation of the game soundtrack, Tommy Tallarico, Virgin's in-house musical composer, was assigned the task of bringing the iconic film score to the Sega Genesis system. He worked with another composer named Donald Griffin to take the movie soundtrack and convert it into a format that the Sega Genesis could play, which in this case meant the creation of MIDI files. So let's talk about what MIDI is. MIDI stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And effectively, all that means is that these, fi these files, these musical files, these audio files, are digital representations of musical notes, durations, pitches, instruments, and whatever other information is needed in order to tell the computer how to play a given note or a given piece of music. So MIDI, all that is, is effectively a series of instructions for a computer or console to make music. It does not contain any actual recorded audio. It's not like listening to an MP3 file or something on a CD. It is just the instructions. It says the note pitch, the instrument, the duration, the uh, any sort of sustain or any other musical type of notation is included in these instructions that the computer or console will then interpret and determine how to play a given sound. There are various types of sounds that can be applied to MIDI files, the most common of which are sample-based or wavetable sounds and FM synthesis. So let's talk about each really quickly. Sample-based sounds is exactly what it sounds like. 
you take an instrument sample, so an actual audio sample of an instrument, so let's say a piano, you might have recordings of what a piano sounds like across the various musical spectrum with different notes and things like that. That sample can then be applied to a MIDI file if the MIDI says, okay, play a piano sound in the key of C, it can go back to that sample file, find where C is digitally represented as a piano, and play that sample back. So sample-based sound oftentimes sounds relatively realistic because the underlying sounds that are being generated or that are being used in that file are based on true real-world audio samples. FM synthesis, by contrast, doesn't use any sort of real-world audio samples. It truly synthesizes the sound based on various types of waves or frequency modulation waves that basically they combine square waves, sine waves, all sorts of different mathematical notational waves that have musical representations. They get combined in order to approximate a given instrument. So that's why it's called synthesis. The digital sound, the actual sound of the instrument's don't really exist other than the synthesized version that that particular process will generate. So the Genesis sound chip utilized FM synthesis to generate music for its titles with the ability to play up to 10 different channels for audio, which basically means up to 10 different sounds playing at any single time. One of those tracks was able to be repurposed for utilizing digital sounds, which oftentimes would be used for either a drum or percussion sample or rudimentary voices to be included in a game. Tommy Tallarico decided to use that digital channel to make the FM synthesis-based soundtrack closer to the actual movie soundtrack, leveraging every ounce of the Sega Genesis sound subsystem to create a game soundtrack that approximated the orchestral music found in the film. To do that, he had to literally touch every single note of music to figure out how best to play and prioritize the sound because the music had to compete with other sound effects in the game not to mention the fact that the game cartridge still had space limitations that would prevent a full-fledged digital soundtrack from being utilized it was definitely a manual effort but one that he believed was worth it given the importance of the game beyond the visuals and music the overall gameplay for the experience would be driven by design evolutions to David Perry's platforming game engine, with multiple new elements such as hidden rooms, portions of levels that would only open up under certain specific considerations, and multiple paths through each level being added to create an experience unlike anything Virgin had created before. All of these efforts culminated in a demonstration at the Summer 1993 Consumer Electronics Show, at which point Disney... Sega and Virgin jointly unveiled their new Aladdin title. This was a big deal occasion, and Disney spent $250,000 on the event alone, turning a convention hall into a scene straight out of the movie, with live animals, dancers, music, and actors creating a level of spectacle for a video game launch that was unheard of. Shortly after the event, word began spreading about the title, with the hype continually increasing over the following months until eventually Aladdin would finally release on the Sega Genesis in November of 1993. The game was an undeniable hit, with 1.6 million units sold in its first week of release, en route to over 4 million copies sold over the course of its lifetime, enough to make Aladdin the third best-selling Sega Genesis game of all time, right after Sonic the Hedgehog 1 and 2. 
both critical and player response was extremely positive, with many praising the game's graphics and animations as something they didn't think the Genesis would be capable of. A number of publications included Aladdin on their Best Games of the Year list, and it is widely considered to be one of the best Sega Genesis games of all time, even today. The game would be ported to a number of different systems, including the Amiga and DOS computer platforms, as well as the Nintendo Game Boy and Nintendo Entertainment System consoles. As usually happens, each port had their own eccentricities and quirks, so just to go through a couple of those. The DOS and Amiga versions were enhanced from the baseline Sega Genesis version, with better quality digital audio and even higher quality graphics. The NES and Game Boy versions, meanwhile, eh, they were significantly downgraded versions of the Genesis title, which you might expect given the relative weakness of each console, with both graphics and sound being reduced in quality and certain levels being eliminated entirely from the experience. Interestingly, a Sega CD version of the game was in the works, but would never end up being completed. There was also a planned sequel to the title, using a pre-rendered three-dimensional style similar to Donkey Kong Country, but Disney decided to scrap that title before it had a chance to be developed. Beyond those ports and unreleased titles, Aladdin would go on to be re-released several times over the years, with the most recent release being a bundle of Aladdin, The Jungle Book, and The Lion King released on all modern systems back in late 2021. That release would include some of the creature comforts we've come to expect, such as save states, cheat codes, and even alternate versions that play with the overall structure of the titles. By the way, you might be wondering what happened to that Capcom version of the title, the one that was being developed for the Super Nintendo. It would, similar to the Genesis version, be praised for its graphics and gameplay, and would be well-liked amongst critics and players alike, making its way onto a number of best Super Nintendo games of all time, while still selling almost 2 million copies worldwide. Though interesting, the game's designer, Shinji Mikami, who some of you may recognize as the director behind Resident Evil, would go on record to state that if he had to choose, he would have played the Sega Genesis version, mostly because it had better animation and also because it had a sword. Sword or not, Aladdin on the Genesis was a landmark title in video gaming. The first game to utilize hand-drawn animation as the basis of its world and characters, it represented the pinnacle of Virgin Games' work up to that point, and was a title that put a number of individuals, including developer David Perry, on the map. It also represented a significant pivot by Disney into the interactive gaming market, with Disney beginning to take a more hands-on approach to developing their own titles following the work performed on Aladdin. Despite the setbacks encountered early on in its development, the fact that Aladdin on the Genesis is so well-regarded is a testament to the efforts and work performed by all individuals involved in its creation. It is a prime example of a truly collaborative effort, and as such, represents the rare licensed title that avoids mediocrity to instead become a still-remembered, much-loved classic. We 
are now going to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was originally released. So just as a refresher, we are talking Aladdin and specifically the 16-bit version of Aladdin for the Sega Genesis system, which was developed by Virgin Games and published by Sega back in 1993. So before we talk about Aladdin for the Genesis, I do just want to say I have no specific or particular nostalgia for the Genesis version of the title. What I do have nostalgia for was the Super Nintendo version of the title. When I was a kid, the Super Nintendo Aladdin version was my jam. I loved playing Aladdin on the Super Nintendo. I got pretty darn good at it. I thought that the overall animation and graphics and the music and the levels, everything felt really good to play. So I didn't want to look at that today because I figured, well, I've played that before. I've played that ad, ad nauseum before. I wanted to do something different, at least to me. So that is why we are going to focus exclusively on the version for the Sega Genesis, which once again, I have no particular nostalgia for. This is purely my experience playing the game today versus when it was released many years ago. Geez, at this point, 30 years ago. So Aladdin is a side-scrolling platform action game. And basically, you are armed with a scimitar and a limited supply of apples, and your goal is to progress through the storyline of the film, eventually becoming worthy of Princess Jasmine and saving the kingdom from the clutches of the evil sorcerer Jafar. So, as with any standard side-scrolling platform action game, you're going to have various options for traversing the environment, You'll be jumping from platform to platform, you'll be climbing up ledges, you will be attacking enemies, and otherwise just causing havoc as you try to accomplish whatever your goals are. So let's talk about the general structure of the game. In Aladdin, you will go across 10 different levels throughout the game. Each of those levels are based on scenes from the movie. So a lot of times we've talked about licensed titles before where the licensed titles kind of take a little bit of creative liberty with the overall licensed property. In this case, you're pretty much playing the movie, which is interesting in that they didn't really deviate all that much. Sure, there was some expansion in certain areas because they needed to create additional gameplay, but for the most part, the game stuck to the movie storyline pretty darn closely. So across those 10 levels that you'll eventually get through, you will fight a number of enemies, either via your scimitar or by throwing apples as a form of longer-ranged weaponry. You can find apples throughout the various levels. You pick them up, it gets added into your apple ammunition, and then you can use those apples to attack enemies as well. Though I will say that apples are fairly limited in supply. They're not really available all that much. They're, I mean, you can find a pretty good amount of them as you move through each of the levels. The issue is once you die, you lose all of your saved apples and you have to start over from the default value. I can't remember what the default value was for the apples, but you will lose all of them if you die. And that can hurt sometimes because there are some bosses and some enemies that it really does help to have some apples in your inventory. Uh, and also the thing with apples is that for the most part, they really only stun enemies. So they're not incredibly useful they i mean they certainly serve a purpose and stunning enemies in some instances does in fact help you get through the level there are some enemies where you can just keep peppering them with apples and you will defeat them that's actually how you defeat a couple of bosses in the game too um so you do have to kind of watch your apple usage 
a little bit to make sure that you have enough in order to progress through the game. I will say, though, for the most part, when the game gives you a situation that you need to use apples to continue, it does a pretty good job of respawning additional apples if you run out of any inventory. So I do like that aspect of the game. They kind of figured, well, they didn't want to create a dead end situation, so they would respawn more ammo whenever you needed it. So you do begin each level with a full life bar. And in this game, your full life bar is indicated by smoke coming out of the genie's lamp in the top corner of the screen, which I thought was a nice touch. It was kind of a nice theming element included in the game that rather than just having a straight horizontal bar that goes from green to red or green to, to blank, it has this genie smoke emanating from the lamp. Though the issue with that, or just one of the potential issues with that is it sometimes becomes a little bit difficult to figure out how much life you actually have left because a wisp of smoke out of a genie lamp doesn't really lend itself to segmenting all that well. So, and plus it didn't always seem that you take the same amount of damage from different enemies. So I liked the theming. I don't know that it fully worked mechanically, but regardless, it was there. That was how they decided to represent your hit points. If you get hit, you do gradually lose life, as you would expect. And you can replenish your life by finding hearts that are scattered throughout each of the levels. So you can find hearts, you can replenish some of your health, and for the most part, you're not really going to have too many issues with losing hit points throughout the game, or at least losing enough hit points that you eventually die because of losing hit points. You'll face more issues with just navigating the overall environments and some of the environmental hazards that basically kill you outright. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. As you move through each of the levels, there are multiple checkpoints that exist within each of those levels, allowing you to continue from that spot if you happen to die. So a lot of, a lot of discussion has been made about this game being a very difficult experience. And we will talk about the difficulty aspect of the game when we continue to talk through the individual aspects of the title. But I will say that I did appreciate that each of the levels had checkpoints within them that you could then start from that point, assuming that you're not actually continuing the level, but you're just uh, reviving with a different life. So I did appreciate that. As we've seen before, some of the uh, Virgin Games prior titles did not have checkpoints in levels, which could make for some difficulty or could make for a little bit of problem as we try to move through the game and try to actually accomplish our goals just adds a little bit of what I would consider semi-artificial difficulty. But in this title, we don't really have that issue, which I appreciated. Now, when you play the game, you have limited lives. And to start, you have no continues either. So if you lost all of your lives, you would have to restart from the beginning of the game, regardless of how far you got into the game, which is a little punishing. But there is a merchant that's included in most levels that will sell some useful items, like extra lives, and also they sell something called wishes, which are effectively continues. And throughout each of the levels, you can find these gemstones or gems that you can then spend at the merchant to either buy extra lives or to buy these wishes, which act as continues. I have got to say, 
it is imperative, at least from my perspective, especially when you're learning the game, it is imperative to spend those gems on wishes, on those continues, because I can't imagine anybody sitting down and playing this game straight through for the first time and actually beating the game without needing a continue. This is definitely one of those titles that you will have to learn, that you'll have to experience a little bit before you can get proficient enough to actually beat the game. So I appreciate the fact that those continues were purchasable. Uh, the actual act of purchasing them, I think wishes cost somewhere around, I want to say 10 gems and extra lives cost five gems. There was some difference between the two where lives were less costly than the wishes to actually continue if you lose all of your lives. So just something to keep in mind there. But I did like the fact that they included that mechanic because if they just left the game with no continues, boy, that would have been an even more difficult situation. Now, as we're moving through the levels, also scattered around at various points are genie tokens, which allow you an opportunity to spin a wheel at the end of the level to either win some special prizes or potentially lose all of your turns. And that one, that losing all your turns thing, boy, can that become frustrating. There have been some times where I was beating a level and I had gotten a ton of genie tokens and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just thinking, OK, I'm about to rake in the extra lives. I am going to bank a ton and that's going to make my job a whole lot easier as I go through the rest of the levels. And then the very first spin, I land on that stupid Jafar space and basically around the wheel there are different spaces and Jafar is the space that basically means you lose all of your turns so you lose every single genie token that you had landed on or that you had gotten up to that point if you land on Jafar and invariably other than the very first time I was playing through the game the very first time I played the game I was pretty lucky on the wheel ever since then Every single time I would spin, I would land on Jafar almost instantaneously. So I don't know if that was just my bad luck or the game just decided to hate me, but that was something that was pretty darn frustrating. If you do have better luck than me, though, I do think it's an interesting mechanic to have that included at the end of each level, assuming you can find some genie tokens. Now, in the levels as well are Abu tokens, and those allow you to play a special mini game where you control Abu, who is the little monkey that accompanies Aladdin, and you have to collect various items while avoiding hazards. I didn't really get too much out of those levels, and honestly, I didn't find all of the Abu tokens throughout the entire game, but I did think it provided some additional gameplay and some a little bit of variety of gameplay as well, which once again, I did appreciate. So before we go on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I think that it's interesting to see how various development teams or marketing teams would actually try to sell their products to individuals if they didn't have specific understanding or a specific knowledge of the game in advance. A lot of times back in the 80s and 90s when we were browsing for something to buy, we were literally browsing. We were in a store, we were looking around, and you might base your purchasing decision based on the box. You may not have had articles in a magazine or you may not have had advanced knowledge of what the game is you certainly didn't have gameplay videos on youtube that you could look up because youtube didn't exist yet so for aladdin the back of the box says disney's aladdin sega presents a disney virgin games co-production of disney's aladdin hang on to your carpet for action and fun 
Aladdin slashes his shining scimitar to fight through Agrabah, escape the Sultan's dungeon, survive the fiery cave of wonders, snatch the genie's lamp, and save Princess Jasmine from the evil Jafar. All new technology creates animation so smooth, it's like watching a real animated film. Aladdin battles thieves and desert warriors, and barely dodges danger on his high-speed carpet. Survive Jafar's troops for a dash through special bonus rounds. Hilarious! Palace guards drop their drawers and camels spit dirt wads. Aladdin ping-pongs like a pinball inside the genie's lamp. Academy Award-winning music straight from the movie with favorites A Whole New World, Friend Like Me, and more. And of course, there are some screenshots on the back of the box to help sell the overall experience. So I think they did a pretty good job of marketing the experience, or at least trying to sell the experience to prospective buyers. It certainly sounds interesting to me. Let's talk about whether those claims actually hold up. So we're going to transition to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, and we are going to start by talking about the graphics. And the graphics have been a major focus, or they had been a major focus of what we've talked about even early on in this episode, because there was a big deal made over the fact that Disney animators actually contributed the animations and artwork for use in the game. One of the first times, if not the first time, that such a thing had happened. Now, I will say, as it relates to graphics, it is not hyperbole to say that this is one of the best-looking 16-bit titles that I have ever seen. The animation and graphics are truly close to cartoon quality. Animations are smooth. Every character has character. It looks like you're playing an interactive version of Aladdin, which is exactly what a licensed game should strive to do. Every visual element in the game looks nearly perfect. Everything you've heard about the quality of the graphics on display here is real. The game's visuals are a masterpiece. It's so hard to believe that a Sega Genesis could look this good. Virgin Games and Disney had to have practiced some sort of black magic to make this happen. Seriously, this could be mistaken for a modern cartoon-like platform game. And I also want to add, and the back of the box said this, there was some interesting comedy from a visual element put in there. The, the box mentioned that sometimes the uh, pants on the different guards would fall down and you'd see their boxer briefs or whatever they're wearing there. And that's just kind of common in, in cartoons a lot. I love the fact that they included that in the game. It just added that cartoon whimsical quality to the overall experience, which I thought set it apart from other games of the same kind of genre. This visually was beautiful. Moving on to the sound and music, all of the music in the game sounded spot on with what you'd expect from Aladdin. The main themes of the movie were all represented well, albeit with no true orchestrated music. This was all like we were talking about. These were all MIDI arrangements of the various musical scores, and you can tell that they're not true instruments playing any of the songs. I mean, the Sega Genesis sound hardware was okay, and certainly there are some games and some composers that made incredible use of the Sega Genesis sound system. I'm thinking primarily about things like Streets of Rage 2, where that soundtrack was just phenomenal. The Aladdin soundtrack here, it has all of the hits from the movie that you would expect. Uh, the overall music quality itself, 
you can tell that it's a synthesized kind of soundtrack. It doesn't fully feel like it comes from the movie and that it's not fully orchestrated. But regardless, it did make a pretty good effort with the Genesis sound capabilities to drive that kind of movie theater-like experience. And it was fun to listen to while playing. Each of the level's themes made sense. I did enjoy how they picked the different tracks and which tracks would go with the different levels. And once again, for the most part, the levels followed the overall story of the movie, so it wasn't too hard of a putt to just pick out the songs or the music that were that would play during those individual elements or individual scenes in the movie and just apply them directly to the game. I also want to say that the music really did mesh well with all of the environments and the action that was happening on the screen. I also appreciated the sound effects. I thought the sound effects were really well done in this game, though I wouldn't really say that there were any particular effects that I'd call out as memorable. It's not like I'm sitting back here thinking, oh yeah, I really, really love the sound of that scimitar slash. But all of the sound effects were good nonetheless. They were just simply well done sound effects. It's just none of them really stood out as something that I would say, oh yeah, you have to go out of your way to find this part of this stage to be able to listen to this particular sound effect. Overall, though, this was a really high-quality auditory experience, and I really enjoyed listening to the game as well as looking at the game, because graphics and sound, the presentation aspect of Aladdin was absolutely stellar. Moving on to the narrative and story, the narrative here pretty much follows the story of the movie almost exactly, actually, and the game includes cutscenes between each level to inform the player as to what's happening, which I can appreciate, because... It's very possible, even as big of a movie as Aladdin was, it's possible that some players may not have seen the movie prior to playing the game. So it does help when we have cutscenes that can actually explain what's happening and not just assume because something is a very popular property that everybody has that knowledge going into the game. To summarize, though, for everybody, to summarize the general narrative, you play as an orphan street rat kind of person named Aladdin. Um, he's been living on the streets for pretty much most of his life. One day, you have a chance encounter with the princess of Agrabah, who's named Jasmine, and the two of you fall in love. At the same time, an evil sorcerer named Jafar is plotting to take over the kingdom, though to do so, he needs to find a genie's lamp in order to have his wish fulfilled, with the only known lamp in existence residing in the Cave of Wonders, a crypt that only a worthy soul can enter. Through various events, it turns out that you, Aladdin, are that worthy soul, and you ultimately get tricked into retrieving the lamp, meeting a genie, and eventually saving both the princess and the kingdom from certain doom. So the game is pretty darn faithful to the movie, which I can assume was at least partly driven by Disney's more direct involvement with the title in comparison to some other licensed games. I gotta say, it works. It is a timeless story, and there would have been no need to really expand beyond the story that the movie told. The included story cutscenes, along with the environments and the overall gameplay, struck a good balance for me, so no complaints at all with the narrative and story. Moving on to the playability and controls, the game's controls here are relatively simple. You can move left and right, you can climb, you can jump, you can swing your scimitar and throw your apples as you traverse the 10 levels of the game. It's all pretty traditional platforming fare, and for the most part, the game controls well. That said, I do have a couple of comments. Combat 
does take a little bit of getting used to. And I don't know that I particularly enjoyed the sword play in the game. I know that Shinji Mikami, when he was talking about what version he would rather play, either the Super Nintendo version that he created or the Sega Genesis version, said he might, if he hadn't already created the Super Nintendo version, he would probably play the Sega Genesis version because it had swords. Honestly, I wasn't super pumped about the sword play in the game. Almost every fight devolved into swinging your sword rapidly and possibly hitting your enemy, or maybe not. It was kind of hard to tell until the bad guy was actually defeated. There was very little feedback as to whether you were actually doing a good job in combat. I felt like that could have been made a bit more impactful. It was like there was no sort of feedback other than some clinging of sound effects, like a clink, clink, clink of swords hitting each other and a little bit of dust clouds and just kind of swinging your sword rapidly. There was really no feedback to let you know you actually hit an enemy. It wasn't like there was a knockback or anything like that. So, But oftentimes you would get hit and you're kind of wondering, well, wait, why? Why did I get hit in that particular scenario? So I thought they could have done a better job with the swordplay. I think conceptually, having swords in the game made a lot of sense, and I enjoyed that, even though in the movie, I'm trying to remember, I don't know that Aladdin really uses a sword in the movie so much. Regardless, I think they could have done the combat better from a swordplay perspective. There are other games that do a better job with melee-based combat in these kind of platforming games. So I don't know that they did a 100% accurate or 100% perfect job with the swordplay. It left me a little bit lacking. I also want to talk about the jumping and climbing around levels. For the most part, that feels fine, though there are some platforming sections, primarily in the Sultan's Dungeon level, that honestly feel like they have some pretty wonky collision detection. There are a few sections where you need to time jumps to hop up platforms that alternate between sticking out of a wall and sinking into a wall. And this is something we see in other platform games. I mean, that's not incredibly uncommon to have platforms that kind of appear and disappear. That's that's the core mechanic that I'm talking about right now, where you're on one platform and the next platform ha is doesn't exist. It has disappeared. And then it appears as the platform that you're on disappears. So the overall goal would be to jump from the one that you're on onto that other platform and time your jump appropriately so that you don't just fall, but you actually jump before your platform goes away and you land on the newly appearing platform. So that's not something that is uncommon in platforming games. In this though, specifically in the Sultan's Dungeon level, there are just, it doesn't feel like the game actually has the appropriate collision detection. Sometimes it looked like I was physically above the platform only to fall through the platform and have to start the whole section over. I wouldn't say that this was a major thing. But it was a little frustrating, especially because there are some sections that do require a few few uh, jumps to get up those platforms. And there are some sections that it's not really lengthy, but it's long enough. And especially if you fail or if you fall because you don't because the game kind of fails you and it's not because of your own skill or lack of skill. It's one of those things that it's just a little frustrating and it's something that I felt like they could have done better. It feels like it was almost like a bug or, or just something was missed with the particular collision detection on those platforms. I also want to talk briefly about the last couple of boss fights in the game and just to, let's not beat around the bush. The last couple boss fights from my perspective are just not good. You spend the entire game conserving apples and using them primarily to stun enemies. And then you get to the last two bosses of the game 
and you are expected to use apples exclusively to defeat them. So where did that come from, from a mechanics perspective? It made the game feel just odd, oddly balanced in that regard. I didn't know why you would have to use the apples. And honestly, if you try to use your scimitar in those last couple of battles, you're going to die. Like There is at least... I couldn't figure out a way to avoid some of the attacks short of just throwing those apples. And it feels like the game does want you to use apples in those scenes because like we were talking about a little bit earlier, if you deplete all of your apple resources, more apples will spawn in the boss arenas if you run out. So it's almost as though the game said, hey, we expect you to use apples here. We're going to keep giving you apples so that you can continue to use them. So, okay, that's fine. But I just felt like it was a cop out from a design perspective. I feel like they just didn't know how to design the mechanics for those particular boss fights. So they just decided, let's have the player throw apples. So I felt like it detracted from the overall experience of the game just a bit. And my biggest issue by far was with the final stage of the final boss fight. The only way that I could actually fight that boss involved staying to the far side of the screen, throwing apples at an unseen entity off the other side of the screen. You couldn't get close to the boss or you were going to get hammered and you would die. There might have been a different or better way to tackle that battle, but it seemed ridiculously difficult, if not unbeatable, to fight the boss more directly. The issue here is that you want the final boss of a game to feel epic and you want to experience all of the mechanics that a big bad boss should have. You just don't want to spend your time jumping and throwing apples at a bad guy you can't even see that's sitting off screen because if you see him, you're going to get hit and die. It's just a bit anticlimactic. The biggest gripe that I had, however, was with the ludicrous difficulty spike that happens around level six of the game. To put it into perspective, the first five levels of the game are a bit tricky, but honestly, pretty easy once you get the hang of the controls. And I thought they did a really nice job ramping up the difficulty early on. That all goes out the window on level six, which is a scene where you need to escape the Cave of Wonders and the molten lava pit that's beginning to engulf the cave. The platforming here is just a bit silly, and the dangers are immense. I felt like this level was designed explicitly to be the spot where weekend game renters would say, there is no way I'm getting past this unless I buy the game, which incidentally was a reason why game developers around this time would arbitrarily increase difficulty in their games. They wanted to avoid people beating their titles too quickly, so they made them so that you had to practice for quite some time to become proficient enough to beat the game. Levels 1 through 5 for Aladdin were effectively the game's demo to get you hooked, to make you want to see what else was going to be in the game and what you would potentially face as you would get further into the game. Level 6 and beyond were the gut check levels, with the two hardest stages probably being level 6 and level 8. Level 8 is the level where you are inside the genie's lamp, and you have to make some pretty crazy jumps to very precariously positioned platforms in order to survive. And I want to mention... I don't mind difficulty in games at all. In fact, I enjoy a challenging experience, but I prefer a difficulty ramp, not a spike. Aladdin is one of those titles that relied on a difficulty spike to prevent players from beating it during a weekend rental. And by the way, I actually read that Disney 
for a lot of their titles around this time, like Lion King and Aladdin, they actually mandated developers to increase the difficulty of their games so that people wouldn't beat their games in a weekend, so that they would actually drive sales versus rentals. I don't know if that is 100% true, but I did read that in one of the articles that I was researching. Anyway, those gripes aside, the game still controlled well overall, and it was a mostly fun experience. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? Let's just get it out of the way up front. Aladdin is a good game. I know it sounded like I complained a bit about the playability and controls, but overall, it is a good game. But it's not a perfect game. There are definitely difficulty inconsistencies, there's some questionable design decisions, and there are frustrating encounters that serve to detract from the overall experience of playing the game. That being said, even with those issues, the game is still fun, and I legitimately had a good time playing it. Though, to get the most enjoyment you can out of the game, you need to make sure to do a few things. First of all, you have to prioritize getting extra lives that are peppered throughout the levels. And more importantly, you've got to find the merchant and buy however many wishes you can, which grant you those continues we were talking about. If you spend enough time playing, you can definitely beat the game without needing to continue. But from my perspective, those wishes are a worthwhile investment. For certain levels also, you'll want to plan out your platforming jumps a bit before you make the leap. The game is fairly unforgiving, so a little bit of caution does go a long way. And the other thing that you need to try to do is try not to get irritated when you land on Jafar's face every single time you spin the Genie's Wheel minigame. I've just got to be the unluckiest person out there because it happened to me a lot. Otherwise, though... This is a worthwhile experience, and if you take the time to get used to it and can overlook some issues, it's still a fun time even today. So overall, what is our verdict? Once again, this is a good but not perfect game. I can appreciate what the team did here, and in particular, the graphics and animation are unlike any other 16-bit title that I've seen. That alone makes this title worth experiencing. It is simply a joy to look at. That said, there are some control issues and difficulty inconsistencies that can bring the fun level down a little bit. And for those reasons, I believe Aladdin for the Sega Genesis is a golden oldie. You should play it, and you'll probably have a good time, but it's not the smoothest 16-bit platformer you'll ever play. It's definitely still worth your time, but I don't know that it's something I'd keep going back to after I beat it. Regardless, you should check it out, and it definitely deserves its spot as one of our golden oldies. That was our episode on Aladdin. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, give me advice, comments, suggestions for future episodes, or just talk about classic gaming or technology in general, I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. You can either reach me on Twitter, I have the handle at ClassicGamingT, or you can shoot me an email at the address ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think, so feel free to drop me a line if you feel so inclined. 
Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is focused on Star Fox for the Super Nintendo, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize that this podcast lives pretty much anywhere the podcasts live, so if you wouldn't mind, I would love it if you could leave a review on your podcast engine of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts or harvesting a ton of five-star reviews, though if you do feel like this is a five-star podcast, awesome, that means that we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is just getting the feedback needed to make sure that I'm creating the best possible podcast that I can. I really want to continue to grow the community. I want to continue to provide content that you all find worthwhile. The only way to continue to do that is to gather that feedback and make sure that if we do have any gaps, we can address them to make sure that this is as good of a podcast as it can possibly be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Star Fox. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. 